What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, Wealth Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Russ, I love this episode because banking is, do you know what I mean by that? Well, I remember Nelson used to say it all the time. So I'm, I'm assuming that's where you're going. Any chance I get to quote Nelson, of course, I'm going to do it, right? Banking is, if you want to know what to invest in in 2023, private lending. Private lending, if you do it correctly, it's tried and true. It delivers consistency for the long haul. In fact, as you know, it was like the first place that I put money to work when in through my IBC system after I left the bank. It just I can, makes sense, right? It's logical. I, I can see that. I, I think money is always in fashion, bro. <laughs> right? Always. Unlike your outfit, it's always oh, in fashion. Oh. Money always in fashion, Stallion. And listening to Liam today, I think, gives us another path, as you just said, to get into the passive income game. It's also it's also a great way to use infinite banking. That Nelson would talk about, Nelson Nash, by the way, we, sometimes we get caught using just his first name and people who never heard our podcast before haven't had a chance to read his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, don't even know who Nelson is. But you and I had a chance to spend so much time with him. I think we tend to just call him by his first name, Nelson. But he would always talk about how he would use his life insurance cash values as a banking, as a lending mechanism, whether it's to him or to someone else. I think private lending is a great way IBC could be used for those who haven't had that first place to put it. So if you haven't already taken our investor DNA and you want to try to figure out is this concept, is private lending the pathway for you to become financially free in 2023? Go to wealthwallstreet.com forward slash investor DNA and see what is the perfect one for you as it relates to who you are and how you see the world. Stallion, let's take no more away from this episode. Let's jump in right now with Liam Leonard. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Wealth Without Wall Street Tribe, have you ever considered private lending but didn't know where to start? Today's guest, Liam Leonard in the house. Liam, thank you for being on with us. Excited to be here, Joey. Thanks for having me. Man, I, I imagine, Liam, growing up as a kid, you said, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be in the debt business. That's what I want to do. <laughs> like, I just want to do lending of all sorts. 
And where can I get started? Like, is there like a school for this? Is that is there a school for this, Liam? Did you go to school to be a lender? Uh, if I had, I'd be a lot further along as a lender than I than I am today. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there is no school. Or fortunately, I, I think a lot of people end up falling into uh, the debt space or the real estate space as they start exploring different ways that they can create income for themselves. And for me, it was slightly different. Uh, I had an economics degree. I had a real estate finance concentration when I went to get my MBA. Uh, so. I knew real estate finance was going to be in my future. I always thought it was going to be something I did on the side to help build my portfolio and kind of fortunately or opportunistically fell into the space and created a company and here we are today. So you you were not always in this space. You were in corporate America and we were talking a little bit before we press and record that you had to make a decision. Either it was going to be family life or it's going to be professional life. You want to like elaborate a little bit as to how you made the, that decision and what were some of those pressing uh, moments there? Yeah. So in my career prior to Lions Cove, I worked with Nestle, Pepsi, and T-Mobile. So some of the smallest companies in the world and uh, some of the corporate functions. And uh, I was moving very rapidly. I got promoted every nine to 15 months or moved laterally, uh, always within uh, looking for different functions. And my goal was always to be be the CEO. Uh, I had lived in Spain. I'd lived in South America. I'd lived in uh, China. I speak Chinese. I speak Spanish. Wanted that international side of things and uh, thought that being that international CEO was the direction that I wanted to head. Ultimately, what I realized is every time I got promoted, my wife would ask me, hey, when is it going to stop? Because what she was seeing is that I was spending more and more time tethered to the phone or tethered to work. And that family was taking a further and further backseat to that career enhancement. And it was always, you know, pushing it out, kicking the can. Oh, a couple more years or, hey, I'll finish this program. Well, after that program came another program and further acceleration and it just continued. And it got to the point where I was in my late 20s and she goes, well, do you want to be a dad? And my wife and I have been together since high school. And we've always known that we wanted kids and wanted to start a family and when she said that, I was like, what do you mean? Of course, we're going to have you know three boys. We're going to have this rambunctious house. And uh, the follow-up question was, what kind of dad do you want to be? And I was like, what do you mean by that? She's like, well, you're never here. You're always on your phone. You're When you're here, you're not really present. You're thinking about other things. And we're not, we don't have that connection that we used to have. It's all about your career. And it was kind of a, a sucker punch almost to be like, ooh, do I have my priorities set? turns out T-Mobile, who I was with at the time, did me a solid because my next rotation was either going to be in Cleveland or Baltimore. And no offense to anyone who lives in those cities, but all our family was on the West Coast and that wasn't appealing. And that in conjunction with the conversation with my wife made it very easy to step away and say, I've got to find something different and I've got to reframe this vision and this dream that I've had for my wife because it, it's not working. And so stepped away and went and traveled for several months. And uh, very quickly, uh, my wife came to me and said we were pregnant. And uh, that got me thinking uh, into high gear of what the next thing was going to be. And that led me into uh, a private debt school, so to speak, and uh, where I am today. 
Wait, so talk about that. Like you just started your own business at that point or how did you get involved in being a private lender at that point? So I was fortunate. The programs that I, were, I was in, I was well taken care of, right? So all of my living expenses were uh, covered uh, and then I was given salary options, everything on top of that. And so we were just, we were stocking money and uh, we weren't spending it because I didn't have time to spend it because I was tethered to the job. And so the, we had a nice nest egg where I could not work for several years and we would be just fine uh, with our lifestyle. And so I knew that was there and I knew I had a safety net. My dad had been an entrepreneur, had started his own company. I had always feared that because I didn't want to spend so many hours diving into uh, making the company more important than the life, which is ironic because that's what corporate world became for me. So I never had any formal entrepreneurial training, but the program I was in with T-Mobile, I had to go into a function. I had three months to get up to speed. And then after three months, I was expected to outperform 75% of the people in that function. So I moved from uh, running a call center to running a sales region to managing a big portion of the accessories business. And it was very much a trial by fire. You gotta go and figure it out. And that served me very well coming over to the entrepreneurial side. But I'd never explored entrepreneurship. I'd never taken any classes in entrepreneurship. Uh, for me, I always challenged the status quo and uh, was frustrated when organizational inertia got in the way of doing the right thing uh, for what made sense for either the borrower or you know profitability or X, Y, Z. And so I knew I wanted to be a CEO and decided, why don't I just go do my own thing uh, and give that a try and see what happens. And so... Uh, was exploring options um, and my uh, had a family member who had been doing private debt off his private balance sheet uh, asked me to come join him and you know gave me some startup capital and gave me the initial uh, knowledge that I needed uh, at least the direction and some of the resources to get started and I was off and running. Okay, so let's break that down for someone who doesn't even know what that even means, right? You said doing private lending off his private balance sheet. So he's just lending money to individuals. How was how is he finding these people or, or vice versa? How are they finding him? Yeah, so my partner had a, a long career and still continues with conventional mortgages. So people who want a, a mortgage on their house would go to him. And what he was finding is that there was a subset of people who were looking for loans on investment properties that didn't meet the box. So the government has a very clear box and you either meet it or you don't. And if you don't, they say, no, uh, good luck, go find something else. And he was looking at these people and these people were business owners, right? Probably like the three of us who have assets, things look good. Uh, we're very comfortable in terms of how we live, but sometimes our tax returns will take deductions or we'll have loss carry forward, or we'll be playing with the financials where it doesn't fit the box. And he would look at it and be like, I can lend to Russ. Why wouldn't I lend to Russ? This is stupid. The system doesn't make sense. And so he would take his private money and lend it to Russ to go do a, a uh, investment deal, usually a fix and flip, something you would see on HGTV. Uh, or a bridge type loan where uh, needed money quickly to be able to close because I'm buying a, a property off market, right? Or from a wholesaler or something that's not listed publicly um, and can get a great deal, but have to close in two weeks. 
then they'd go to him and he would lend them the money uh, directly. As part of that, here's the question I have is, you know, I'm thinking how that that could resonate with me, right? I like the idea of having a piece of real estate backing up the the money that I'm lending. And Joey, that was one of the ways that he kind of got into the passive income space. The thing that I'm I'm wondering, though, is how do I know as the lender and how did he know or you ultimately start to learn if the deal was good? Like, how do you start vetting deals to make sure that you're not lending against 110% of a property as compared to 50 or 60%. Yeah, so coming from the conventional loan background, and I know Joey's got some of that background as well as a loan originator, there are certain metrics that you look at that are uh, just back of hand, right? So uh, DTI is one, debt to income. So looking at what that total debt load is uh, to the income that they're making. Uh, LTV, loan to value, how much is the loan relative to the value of the home? Uh, my partner was very comfortable on the conventional side in understanding what those uh, metrics in terms of the DTI and the LTVs were. And the deals that were coming through, through to him, he had all of the information. And that was already there. And they were being denied on one side. So he could take that information and say, well, this debt to income is you know, 14%. They're just not qualifying because they don't have two years tax returns or whatever that may be. That's someone that I'm willing to, you know, take a risk on, so to speak. The other component on the loan to value side is typically they're lending, you know, 80% or, or higher. Most people, first time home buyers are 95% of the value of their house is in a loan. Well, when you go on the private side, that number is closer to 75 or 65%. And the length of the loan is not 30 years. It's usually two years or 18 months or one year. And so you're drastically reducing the time period that you have exposure to what I call market risk, essentially housing prices declining. And you've got a much bigger buffer on the private side that you look at to make sure you've got equity there from the deal. So things we look at in terms of what's a good deal or not, credit score, uh, which is a uh, understanding of how they've done with uh, other past uh, experiences with taking debt and paying it back. Uh, is a huge indicator. And then the other one is the loan to value. And so we look at those two as the main decision makers in, is this a good deal or is that not a good deal? Well, you're, you're of course, you're bringing me back into my, uh, my heyday of looking into mortgages. And, uh, and actually, as Russ mentioned, it, as soon as I left Wells Fargo, I, that was the first thing that I pursued was private lending because is what I know. Like I, I could, I could underwrite a deal and, and decide, yeah, this makes sense to me, even though it doesn't fit the conventional mortgage box. Um, for somebody that doesn't have that experience and they like the idea of private lending because they know it's backed by collateral. It, they know it's tried and true. It's like, it, it's lasted, you know, uh, you know, decades and decades, you know, centuries of people lending money. It's not new. It's not exciting. It's just steady and solid, but they are worried about the what ifs, right? Like I could get into this, except what happens when the deal goes wrong, right? When, and, and what are some of those things that you look at Liam, that you say, these are the things that could possibly go wrong. And this is why we, set up our loans accordingly. Yeah, one of them is liquidity. So we are looking at between the income that the person is making and the liquidity that they have on hand, are they going to be able to pay us on a monthly basis? 
Because at the end of the day, our investors, what our investors want are just a consistent return every single month where money hits their account. And so as we're looking to, you know, what could go wrong or what are we looking at? Can the borrower make their payments every single month uh, is critical. And so we do a rough analysis to figure out how many months of reserves they have and how much income is coming in to make sure that that is feasible. If they don't have enough money to essentially make the payments, then you're in a position where uh, you're no longer collecting income on that loan. And then you've got a, a couple of remedies, right? You always, we always want to work with the borrowers to figure out a solution to be able to get them to the finish line. So some ways you can do that if you've got, if your loan to value is low enough, you can restructure the deal to allow them to take some money out to provide interest reserves to cover the payments for the rest of that loan. That goes back to, you know, how aggressive are you being on the front end and how much loan are they taking against the asset and how much buffer do you have? The more buffer you have, the more wiggle room you have to work things out uh, and find um, amicable solutions that work for both parties. So on that, Liam, you, you mentioned, do they have enough liquidity and is the LTV low enough? Will you break that down for me? What is enough liquidity and what is low enough on the LTV? So typically on liquidity, we're looking for at least six months. So at the time of originating the loan, you should be able to pay all your current debt load plus carry another six months of our loan. That's essentially the baseline to make sure they've got some reserves. Then we look at the income to say, you know, is this logical that they'll be able to continue to make payments uh, moving forward? So that's what we're looking at from a liquidity side. From a loan to value side, our company typically doesn't exceed a 75% loan to value. That means we've got 25% equity in the property at, uh, at the origination of the loan. The last several years prior to COVID with an appreciating market, well, that 25% buffer right at the end of 12 months became you know, 35%. And so it actually became safer. In the current environment, it's moving the opposite direction. And so as you're looking at, do you have enough wiggle room there? You might start your loan where you've got a 25% buffer or 75% loan to value, but if housing prices are declining and it goes down 10, 15%, well, now your buffer similarly is only 15 or 10%. So you've got to make sure that you've got enough buffer there to be able to work through and sustain a couple months of non-payment as you work the loan out on the back end, if you have to. And for those that are doing rehabs, are you doing ARV after repair value or are you doing before? Yeah, so we do both. So we look at uh, the ratio of the loan that we do at time of origination or time of purchase relative to the value of the house at that point in time. That value for us doesn't exceed a 75% loan to value. Then what we'll do is if they have a rehab, we'll typically finance up to 100% and typically we finance 100% of that rehab or the construction costs. We have an inspection company that we work with that goes and inspects to make sure that uh, they're making progress. They've done what they say. We get lien releases along the way to make sure we're covered. And then we'll send the money to the borrower. The ARV side, and, or in terms of the after repair value, the finished value of that home, we'll look at against the total loan. So the total loan relative to the finished value shouldn't exceed 65%. If that ARV is equal to or greater than your starting LTV, it means they're not actually adding value to the house and doing the project. And if they're not adding value to the house, there's no reason for them to do the work. And it's not a loan we want to sponsor because it, you just open yourself up to more challenge. 
So that ARV to us ratio needs to be at least 10% less than your starting LTV ratio. If you've listened to our show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about infinite banking and how we were able to use that concept to create over $50,000 a month in passive income. But it's just not that easy to figure out how does this all connect into my own personal system? Stallion, that's why we created the Passive Income Operating System, bro. It shows you how to turn active income into passive income. It makes all the steps come together. If you would like to get access to it as a podcast listener, we've never given this away in public before. Go to whatswhatwallstreet.com forward slash P-I-O-S. There was nothing worse than walking into class when you're in school and the teacher's saying, pop quiz day. Why? Because you were unprepared. Are you unprepared, though, for financial freedom? Don't be. Find out how close you are by taking our 30-second quiz at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash quiz. So uh, I think a couple of things that you mentioned there. um, Number one, you're only lending this for a short time. So whenever people get worried about market risk, they're more concerned about longevity if it's like a 10, 20, 30 year loan, you have to really be more concerned about that versus in your case, you're making a 12 month loan. So that loan to value is important, but you're hedging against how bad could it possibly transition in 12 months, right? You, you do anything longer than 12 months or is that, that's the norm? No, 12 months is the cap. And I think uh, for those listening, you've probably picked up I'm a nerd. Uh, the econ degree comes from Yale. Um, uh, the finance and real estate comes from UCLA Anderson. But everything, so we go back and I look at, uh, there's a couple indices, the Case-Shiller Index, the Housing Price Index. So we're looking at historical, uh, what has changed over a 12-month period and what's the biggest risk that we face. Right? So we went back 100 years and the biggest drop came in 2008. No surprise. Uh, a very familiar for majority of us. 2008, the one-year decline nationally was 21%. Uh, in Los Angeles, it was about 23% area. So there were certain markets that were higher. There were certain markets that were lower. That number informs what we're willing to lend. And that gets us to that 75% loan to value. All our loans are 12 months or less. So we know we don't have exposure that's greater than that. And if we go back to what the biggest drop in history has been, we still have enough buffer where we're protecting principal. Our number one goal is to protect principal. Number two is to give consistent return. So we've never lost money. We've never uh, on any deal. Uh, We've always been able to protect the principal and we've always given a consistent return. And that goes to using the indices as you're talking about and the knowledge that's out there, Joey, to make sure we're not uh, overly exposed to any sort of market risk that we're protected on that downside. And we've got enough buffer in that LTV as we've been talking about Russ to make sure that we can work through any situations that come up. Uh, and yeah. I, I love the fact that you're addressing the economy going bad, the market crashing, right? The 2008 is a great one for us to look back to. Let's go a little bit deeper though, on what happens if the borrower stops paying, what, is that you guys do to not only get the deal either back going or help help ensure that you guys and the investors ultimately that are coming into the deal with you are secure? Yeah. So one of the things we do with our borrower and it's in our contract is all the borrowers have to be set up on ACH. So the only way that a borrower misses a payment is one, they don't have enough funds in their bank account. 
um, if they don't have enough funds, that warrants a call from us. Or number two, they've called up our servicer and actively removed themselves from ACH, which is now a breach of contract and something we're going to want to discuss with them. So anytime someone misses a payment, we've got a team who's immediately on the phone with these guys to try to understand what's going on, what are the circumstances, and how do we work through that together. Our goal is to get them to a place where they can make the payments. We don't want anyone not making payments. And so we're fairly flexible in terms of, okay, what's going on? How do we help with that? Uh, how do we be able to you know, move forward? And most of the time, you know, 60% of the time, it was, oh, you know, money didn't transfer on time or I'm waiting on a paycheck or I've got this insurance claim or, or some reasonable explanation that can be resolved in 30 days. They're back to paying and everything's copacetic. The other 40% of the time, you've got people who have financial hardship and can't make their payments. And essentially, we start stepping them through a process uh, that would ultimately end up in foreclosure, uh, which, again, we're trying to avoid, but gives them enough time to try to get it to a good solution. So uh, 30 days late, right? If you are 30 days late, we are effectively calling you every single week several times, and our servicer is as well, to try to get to a resolution. If you have ignored or cannot perform on that, we'll move to a default status. Default status means you're effectively paying us more interest. It's a big stick that we use to try to get people to work with us to remedy the loan or get it back in line. If for some reason we can't uh, achieve a amicable result in that uh, default period, then we'll start that foreclosure period. And if we're in default or if we're talking with a borrower who says, I've got a financial hardship, usually we're counseling them that you either need to refinance out and get into lower rate debt if you finish the project or close to finishing the project, uh, or you need to sell. And for borrowers hearing that they need to sell on something that they envision big numbers and it may not be penciling is challenging. And usually it will take a month or two for them to realize. But if you've done the underwriting correctly and there's enough buffer, even if they sell at a 10% discount, they should still be making money relative or recouping, right? Not going as negative with us uh, versus losing the property, right? So there's always an incentive that we've built in for them to be able to sell and still be better off. And so that's what we work through uh, with them. If we have to go to foreclosure, uh, we'll file the foreclosure paperwork and we'll move through that. Uh, ultimately, if they don't want to or can't sell the property, then it will go to an auction sale uh, and will be sold and their debts will re be repaid that way. Uh, we've only had that happen once in our five years uh, that we've been operating. Uh, almost always, you know, there's there's enough equity there that the borrower wants to exit and uh, essentially sells the property or refinance. Yeah. You're, you're working with people in light of what's motivating them. Right. So they, they don't want to give that equity up by any chance. I have another follow-up question. Somebody that wants to get into this at the ground level, just starting from scratch themselves. Maybe they just want to do peer to peer. Like they find somebody, they have a, a, uh, a private lending opportunity. What is, if any, um, sort of documentation and or um, regulation do they need to be concerned about at that level? And then, and is there additional regulation hurdles that as they grow, you know, let's say they start doing 10 loans or 20 loans a year or something like that. Uh, walk us through those, those potential challenges or, or things that they would want to know. 
Yeah. So the usual disclaimer, not an attorney, consult a professional, um, my personal views only, 10 is usually a magic number. Less than 10, if you're doing just yourself from your personal finances, lending to someone else directly, usually you don't need to be licensed to do that. Uh, and particularly if you're doing a business purpose, commercial loan, uh, you're able to do that. That's not true in all states. Some states require you to be licensed uh, if you're lending against real estate that's uh, one to four units. Uh, so you'd need to check that uh, specifically. But majority of states, you can lend essentially without a license uh, up to uh, 10 loans. Uh, after 10 loans, uh, there are, I believe it's 10 to 11 states that require you to be licensed uh, to do any sort of lending. And so then at that point, you'd need to get licensed with the applicable uh, state entity. Usually it's a Department of Finance or Department of Revenue. Uh, plus the wonderful NMLS from our good old days, Joey, that uh, you've got to get licensed as a loan originator and get bonded and all of those things. So oh, you're um, making me shiver just when you say that. <laughs> so it starts to step up as you get bigger and bigger. But for someone who's just getting in, if you were making a loan and usually your first loan as you're getting in is to a family member or a friend, uh, you're usually OK there. Uh, I would suggest talking with an attorney to get a very good doc set. Uh, particularly two most important documents are the promissory note and the deed of trust and making sure that's recorded. Uh, so you're protecting your interest um, with that loan. Do you also have some sort of um, clause where you're having them put you on their insurance policies in the event of a fire or some sort of natural disaster on the property? Absolutely. Uh, that's a requirement for us to close where we're essentially named as uh, the mortgagee and the amount of the policy has to be at least equal to uh, our loan or the cost to replace the entire structure. Um, and so we'll go through that. We'll make sure we're named. And then if they try to make any changes uh, at that point, either removing us, canceling, modify, we get notified of that. And uh, that language is part of the contract that they need to maintain the insurance at the appropriate levels. That's, that's great. Those, those things are super important to have in place to protect. The other question I have is about time. And somebody's thinking about private lending. At the highest level, you're an accredited investor. Somebody can just lend. They can, they can be a part of a fund like that you run. And that can be what is being lent out in terms of the collateral that is being lent against. That's easy, right? We know that the time it takes for that is very minimal, if, if any. They want to maybe potentially do their due diligence on who they're going to do that with, and they need to have a track record and all those sort of things. We've talked about you know, interviewing the right operators for stuff that you want to invest with. But for somebody that's wanting to do this themselves, about like walk us through from a time commitment, things that they would need to be thinking about, and how much time it really does take to, to be involved in um, passive income as it relates to private lending? So on the front end, there's probably 20, 25 hours, I would imagine, in terms of vetting a deal uh, and working with the third parties to get all the documentation together that uh, you want to make sure that you've got. Uh, so we're doing appraisals to make sure that we understand the values uh, from a third party perspective. We're getting insurance. We're doing validations if there's a rehab uh, we're working with title to make sure there's no uh, exceptions on the policy uh, that we've got the appropriate coverage 
Uh, we're looking at bank statements, et cetera. All of that and the back and forth collecting the application, probably 20, 25 hours on a standard deal. If all goes well from there, and uh, then we set them up with a servicer, a servicer essentially collects payments on our behalf, uh, sends out the notices. So um, oftentimes when you do a mortgage today, you'll do a mortgage with someone and then a couple months later, you'll get a notice that says, we now own your loan, please send your payment here. Kind of a similar structure where someone is collecting payments on our behalf, but just makes it easier. And so you can use a third party to do that so you don't have to track the accounting. So that accounting piece and the uh, the tax forms that you have to provide to the borrower is essentially all handled by the third party for us. So we end up outsourcing a lot of that. Same with legal, our legal docs. Uh, we've got a template through a portal that we can plug in the key information and then it, it populates for us, right? So some of those things have been expedited for us given the volume that we do. Um, after close, if the borrower is making their payment on time, it truly is passive. It's like a uh, having a long-term tenant who's just making their payment every single month and you've got mailbox money, right? Like the golden mailbox money. Well, that doesn't happen 100% of the time, as you know, there's always an issue that pops up. And so if a borrower, is no longer making a payment and you've got to call the borrower. Some of our most demanding borrowers who, you know, uh, pay, 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 miss a period, got to work to get them back on. Then they miss another one, got to work to get them back on. Take another 10, 15, 20 hours on the back end each time some of those things come up. And that can be very time intensive uh, to be able to manage and to work through. If you've got to go through default and then foreclosure, right, that time just compounds. Uh, if you've got issues where uh, they're not performing on the rehab and you've got to step in or you've got to, you know, evaluate an inspection report, that takes more time. If you've got theft on the job site or mechanics liens, right, there's all sorts of things similar to other investments that would pop up that will take time that while it's passive, uh, there's definitely an active component that would come up depending on what happens. In terms of what happens and bad stuff happening, that goes back to the questions you were asking in the beginning, right? If you've got a good deal and you've got a good borrower and you've got a good relationship with them and those things are less likely to happen, you're going to have a smoother experience where it can be more passive. When you start going and doing it at scale, you're going to have those bumps. As we start to wrap up, I want to make sure we don't miss the opportunity for the so what, right? The person listening is asking, so what does this look like? If I were to get involved in this both and or as a purely passive, maybe fund investor, because I know you guys run a fund, or if I wanted to get in this and try to do it peer to peer, be one of those people that's doing this on the side, kind of as you guys both started out in that world, doing that individually, What's the so what? What does the returns look like? What could I expect a typical deal to return? So if you're going to do this direct and uh, manage that, you're probably looking at a 12% uh, interest rate that you can charge to your, your client uh, in the current space, right? Maybe 13, maybe charge them a couple fees where your, you know, your total return on capital is probably between 12 12 and 14% somewhere in there. In doing so, you've got, you've got the concentration risk of the borrower and the asset and a single loan that, that you house, right? And so you effectively, you get a premium for being the one that's managing that and not having diversification there. If you go into a fund structure like ours, you've got hundreds of loans 
that are there. You've got a lot of other people's money that are there. Right? so you've got geographic diversity, you've got borrower diversity, uh, you've got, you eliminate a lot of those concentration risks, right? And you have someone else manage it from all the time perspective. For us last year, we returned about a 10% net uh, to the investor um, over the course of the year. Uh, what we typically communicate is we'll be between seven and 9%. Uh, so we like to under promise and over deliver, but our goal is to give somewhere in the eight to 10% range on just a consistent basis where people know that it will come in and uh, they don't have to worry about it. And we're taking care of things. Um, we do provide opportunities on our end, uh, updates in terms of how things are going and uh, where the you know bad deals or things we're working through and what that looks like. But ultimately the so what, Last year was a 10% net, right? Uh, to be completely hands off versus a 12 to 14 if you were doing it directly. That's really that's really awesome to hear like the final, like how this all comes together. So Liam, someone takes our investor DNA course and they start to see, man, passive investing through private lending is a, a way that I should go. And they just want to get in touch with you. How do they get in touch with you? What would you What would you advise them to do? Yeah, you can go to our website, which is lionscove.com. And uh, on there, there's a contact page and uh, there's an ability for the investors to put an application in, essentially provide some details and what they're looking for. Essentially, what you can expect from us is a call back from um, uh, our guy who manages investor relations. His name is Creighton. Uh, to understand what you're looking for and if this is the right fit and uh, to kind of talk that through uh, to make sure it works for you. And so uh, that's the best way to get in contact with us. And, uh, you know, we'd follow up with a phone call and a conversation to make sure it's the right fit for us. It's got to work for you and uh, it's got to work for us. And if it doesn't, we don't force people into doing anything. That's awesome. Well, Liam, it's been my pleasure getting to know you as I was on your show and and now you've been able to come and add value here in our community. So just grateful to have you today. Uh, Tribe, I hope that this was valuable to you, that uh, this has given you a whole new perspective on private lending and potentially be your path to financial freedom. So if you found value today, please do us the favor of sharing it with a friend. Pass this along, um, like, review, and rate the podcast so that other people can find this valuable information and we can have a whole lot more people having the time freedom that they deserve and that they, that they look for. Thanks as always. And we'll catch you on the next episode. This has been the wealth without wall street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the wall street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.